If you have a Bible, let me ask you to turn to Hebrews 7. We'll look at the first 10 verses. Let me add my greeting to Eric's, uh, for those of you who are visiting, as well as those of you who call Rivermont your church uh, home. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. We've uh, given it the catchy title, Jesus is Better. And hopefully every week you've seen how that is true, that Jesus is in fact better. In professional basketball, as in other sports, people love to rank the all-time best players. This week I heard that NBA All-Star Steph Curry was asked to pick, up, uh, asked to pick his all-time starting five NBA players. And here's, here's, here's was his list. He picked Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, and Shaquille O'Neal. And as I told the A30 crowd, I know there are some of you who those names mean nothing to you. And you're wondering, where is he going to go with this? But for those of you who know who I'm talking about, you can appreciate the fact that as he made that list, there were some who pushed back. They thought that uh, there were some people that maybe he left off the list that should have been on there. And in fact, a few in the 830 service uh, had the same thought. Most notably, LeBron James, who many argue is the greatest to ever play the game. Others noted even the fact that Steph Curry didn't put himself on that list. And you could make a case for him as well. Of course, we don't just rank the best athletes. We rank the best restaurants, the, the best movies, the best songs, the best vacation spots. And all of these lists, no matter what we're ranking, they're subjective, aren't they? Suited to our own perspectives and our preferences. Now, when it comes to Christianity, we don't usually make such lists. We don't rank the best books of the Bible or the most important figures, and for good reason. You may remember the disciples got into an argument over who was the greatest disciple among them. And the Corinthian church nearly split over arguing who was greater, Apollos or Paul. It's a bit of a bad look. And yet the author of Hebrews makes such a list. He makes a list of the five most important figures in Israel's history. And he does that so he can show these Jewish Christians that he's writing to how Jesus really is the better Savior, the true Messiah. So who's on that list? Well, we've already seen Abraham, Moses, Aaron, David, and Melchizedek. Now, I doubt we would push back on the first four. Abraham makes sense as the father of Israel and of the nations. Moses makes sense as the deliverer of Israel. Aaron makes sense because he was Israel's first Levitical high priest. And David makes sense because he was Israel's greatest king. But Melchizedek? He's not who we'd expect to be on that list. So why is he on this list? Especially when it seems that he is more like a footnote in biblical history or the answer to a Bible trivia question. Well, for that, let's turn to our text and find out. Again, I'm reading Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1 through verse 10. This is the word of the Lord for God, uh, for, for his people. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. 
See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Well, there's a lot here. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to bless his word in our time together. Father, we do pray that you would add your blessing on the reading of this, your word, Lord, that we might understand and fully comprehend all that we would need to see that Jesus is, in fact, better. Would you do that for our good and your glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, growing up on a healthy diet of superhero comic books, I was always interested in origin stories. Where do these superheroes come from? How did they get their superpowers? And what happened to the villains that caused them to turn to a life of crime? Knowing their origin stories gave me a better framework for understanding who they were and why they were either superheroes or villains. And in our text this morning, we learn that Melchizedek has something of an origin story, and it is filled with unexpected greatness. Now, there are three ways I think we see his unexpected greatness in our text. The first is in verse 3 where we read, He was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, this is a little jarring. No mother or father? No birth or death? What are we to make of this? Is Melchizedek even a real person? Well, actually, some have speculated that Melchizedek was, in fact, a pre-incarnate version of the Son of God, that he temporarily appeared and then disappeared. But that can't be because of what is written here, that Melchizedek is described as resembling the Son of God, but not being the Son of God. Melchizedek was very much a real person. He was the king of Salem. So what is meant by the fact that he was without father or mother or genealogy? Well, I think it simply means that his line is not recorded in Scripture. Now, while we won't find his name or his parents' name in any genealogy, he certainly had a mother and a father, just like you or me. They just aren't recorded in the pages of Scripture. Well, what about the fact that he has no birth date or death date? Again, as with his genealogy, his birth or death are also not recorded in Scripture. He certainly was born and he did die. But Scripture does not say when that happened. He did appear on the scene and then he disappeared into history. Well, what are we to make of this? Why is Scripture silent on these things? Well, I think it's because we're meant to see a distinction between his priestly order, Melchizedek's, and the Levitical priestly order. 
In the Levitical order, the Mosaic law regulated who could serve as the high priest. As such, the high priest had to trace his lineage back to the physical line of Aaron on his father's side. And his mother must also have been a pure Israelite woman. So in this case, it mattered who your mother or your father was. And that was not the case, however, with Melchizedek's order. He was a priest through the direct appointment of God. He had no qualifications for the priesthood except the fact that God had called him to that office. Now, another difference between the two priestly orders had to do with succession. In the Levitical order, there was a succession of high priests. When Aaron died, his son Eleazar took his place. And when Eleazar died, his son Phinehas took his place, and so on. There was an established line of succession to the high priesthood. But again, that was not the case with the line of Melchizedek, because he had no line. He had no successor, which is why the absence of his date of birth and death is, on, is inconsequential. And because there was no succession, he continues as a priest forever. There was no one to pass his priesthood on to. It was to be a permanent priesthood. And while the Levitical order uh, served an important purpose in the life of Israel, it paled in comparison to Melchizedek's order. His priestly order was unexpectedly greater than the Levitical order because it was permanent. Well, the second way that we see unexpected greatness can be found in verse 1. Not only was Melchizedek a priest of the Most High God, he was also a king, the king of Salem. He is the only person Scripture mentions who served as both king and priest. This royal priesthood is unexpected because of what we would later find in the Mosaic Law. There we read that the office of king and priest were never to be, whole, never to be held by the same person. A king was not to be a priest and a priest was not to be a king. There was to be a separation of powers to protect the integrity of both offices. And yet Melchizedek predated the Mosaic law and was not under those regulations. In fact, again, it was God who had appointed him royal priest and king. And we learn something of his kingship through both his name Melchizedek and his title king of Salem. Look at verse 2. There we see it says, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And so Melchizedek is translated from Melech, which means king, and Sedek, which means righteousness. And to be righteous in this instance is to be just and to follow God's holy heart and ways. It is to see everything a person has as a gift from God to be stewarded for his purposes. Who are willing even to disadvantage themselves for the good of the community. To put the needs of the community or the kingdom above their own. That's what a king of righteousness would look like. As the king of Salem, we know he's also the king of peace. The word Salem is from the same root as the Hebrew word for peace, which you may know as shalom. And when we talk about the word shalom, we talk about it not so much as an absence of conflict, but a presence of flourishing. More specifically, flourishing is a state of well-being or a state of wholeness 
in which all relationships, especially between God and man, are rightly ordered and rightly functioning according to God's design. Now, why is this important? Because names were extremely important to Jewish readers. They believed that names spoke to both a person's identity as well as their nature. Melchizedek's name and his title were synonymous with being a great king. One who was just and dedicated to the flourishing of his people. This in a landscape of brokenness in all earthly kingdoms that surrounded the king of Salem's kingdom. His was unexpected greatness. The last way I think we see unexpected greatness is the encounter Melchizedek had with Abraham. We read about it in verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now the writer here is referencing a meeting that Abraham uh, and Melchizedek had that's recorded for us in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And this meeting followed Abraham's successful military campaign against a band of marauding kings. From Genesis 14, we learn that these kings had raided Sodom and had plundered that city. And among their captives was Abraham's nephew, Lot. With a small army, Abraham overtook the kings and their armies and wiped them out, thus rescuing Lot and capturing all the spoils of war. And on their way back home, Abraham is met by Melchizedek, who performs two priestly actions. He blessed Abraham and he received a tithe from Abraham. We find the substance of that blessing in Genesis 14, verses 9 through, 19 through 20, where Melchizedek says, Before all those gathered, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now the first part of this blessing is directed towards Abraham and is a prayer of blessing over him and his life. The second part of this blessing is directed to God and is blessing God for the way in which he used Abraham to bring about this sure victory. And in offering this blessing to Abraham, Melchizedek is confirming God's promise to Abraham that he was going to bless him and through him bless the nations. Martin Luther said of this blessing, Melchizedek presents Abraham to the entire world and declares that only with him in his house and family are the church, the kingdom of heaven, salvation, forgiveness of sins, and the divine blessing. Well, the second priestly action is receiving Abraham's tithe. Verse 2 says that Abraham valued all the spoils that he had collected and he set apart, he apportioned a tenth of that. This tenth was given to God through his priestly representative, Melchizedek. Now the writer knows that we might miss the significance of what happens. And so he says in verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. What kind of man was Melchizedek? That Abraham, who was the patriarch, the father of Israel, the father of nations, gave him the tithe. 
Even so, how much greater is Melchizedek than the Levitical priest when it comes to the tithe? He goes on in verse 5 and says, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office and have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, the Mosaic law had commanded the Levites to take tithes from the people, the very descendants of Abraham. Yet it was Melchizedek, without a priestly lineage, who received Abraham's tithe. It was Melchizedek that blessed Abraham, who had been given the promises of God to be the father of the nations. And in a most unexpected way, the writer of Hebrews says that Levi himself, think about this, Abraham's great-grandson who had not been born yet, the one who would himself receive tithes from Abraham's own descendants, even he paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek because he shares in Abraham's promises. There's no debate Melchizedek's priestly order is greater than the Levitical priestly order. But this sermon isn't just about Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews is using Melchizedek's greatness to reveal the surpassing greatness of the Son of God. He says in verse 3 that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God but is not the Son of God. So how is Jesus a better high priest than Melchizedek in his order. Well, first, we remarked that Melchizedek was the only person recorded in Scripture to be both a king and a priest. And this was remarkable considering the Mosaic law stance on keeping the offices separate. While Scripture records a handful of kings who were righteous in part, most were not righteous at all, and thus not trustworthy for the office of priest. Yet like Melchizedek, Jesus was entrusted as a king and priest for us. As our high priest, he served as our one true mediator of salvation. He atoned for our sin through the shedding of his blood on the cross. And as our king, his royal power brings hearts under subjection to his will, flourishes and leads his flock and protects his own against every kind of enemy. He is the better king and priest we can trust and follow. But Melchizedek's name and title also point us to Jesus as well. As the king of righteousness and of peace, Jesus lived a righteous life in thought, motive, word, and deed. His perfect righteous life justified his death on the cross and brought peace with God to all who would believe. And that peace was only possible because he had first achieved a righteousness for us. Charles Spurgeon comments, Jesus knew that he could not be king of peace to us until first of all, he had woven a perfect righteousness in the loom of his life and dyed it in his own heart's blood in his death. Jesus truly is our eternal king of righteousness and peace. Secondly, Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham reveals a greater blessing we will receive from Christ. 
When our life comes to an end, our risen Savior, our King and Priest, will bless us before the eyes of this world. Though our blessing is hidden from this world, a world incidentally that Jesus said would despise us as it despised him, Christ will acknowledge us as his own on that day. And the day will in fact come when it will be revealed before everyone. There is one small detail that was included in Genesis 14, 18, to 18 through 20, but not in our text. It is that Melchizedek gave bread and wine to refresh Abraham and his men having come back from war. This bread and wine actually spoke of the body and blood of Christ Jesus, sacrificed on the cross for us. And through the work of his Holy Spirit, Christ ministers this blessing, this means of grace to all who would believe. The Lord's Supper is a source of spiritual nourishment and refreshment to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. And thirdly, we remarked that Melchizedek's greatness came because he had no priestly lineage. His appointment to the high priestly office was by the sole action of God. He had no predecessor and he had no successor. His priesthood was a priesthood with no end, a permanent priesthood outside of what was established in the Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek's unending priesthood is pointing us to Jesus' eternal priesthood. Having been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, Jesus took up that eternal priesthood. He became the eternal priest of our salvation. And because he lives forever, there will never be a time when he can't or won't advocate on your behalf. There will never be a time that his prayers won't or can't pour out spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing in your life. And brothers and sisters, when you die and come before God's throne, he will be there. Your great high priest will be there pointing to his wounds, pointing to those precious wounds earned upon the cross. He will charge the debt of your sin and mine against the righteous account he has earned for and given to you. His priesthood is eternal. It is never ending. It is securing the eternal life promised to you who are in Christ. Melchizedek was great, but Jesus was greater. Yet there is one last greatness to consider, and it is an undeserved greatness. What is the result of Jesus' high priestly work? We are saved from the penalty of our sin, and we have peace with God. Paul writes that in Romans 5.1. We who are God's enemies have become his children, adopted by the grace of God into the family of God, a family of royal priests. This is an undeserved greatness for you and for me. Now, it's not the writer of Hebrews who captures this. It is actually Peter in his letter to the church. And he writes these familiar words in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you hear that? A royal priesthood a family of kings and priests belonging to God and set apart from the world to do what? 
to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous and glorious light. Now, of course, we are not kings and priests like Melchizedek or Jesus, but we are vice regents. We are Christ's representatives of his kingly righteousness and peace right here, right now. So what does that righteousness look like? We've already said that to be righteous is to follow God's holy heart and ways. It is to be just and merciful. It is to see everything a person has as a gift from God to be stewarded for his purposes. Who are willing even to disadvantage themselves for the good of the community. The good of the kingdom. To put the needs of the community and the kingdom above their own. How about peace? What might that peace look like? It looks like flourishing. It is pursuing a state of wholeness in which all relationships, especially between God and man, are rightly ordered and rightly functioning according to God's design. That is our role as kings of righteousness and peace, his vice regents, his representatives here on earth. And if that sounds like a tall order, that's because it is. In fact, it's impossible to live as vice regents of righteousness and peace if you haven't trusted in his righteousness and peace. You will feel protective of your time. You'll feel protective of your resources. You'll feel protective of your energy. This will feel like a burden rather than a blessing. But if you have experienced the king's righteousness and peace in your own life, not only can you live like this, but you will want to live like this. You'll want your life to be full of righteousness and peace, not just because it will please God, but because it will truly fulfill you as God created you and called you to be. It will free you. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us his vice regents to love the neighborhood that surrounds 2424 Rivermont Avenue, to care for the spiritual, physical, and economic lives of our neighbors. He's calling us to do that because he loves this neighborhood. He loved this neighborhood long before we occupied this building. He loved this neighborhood long before Judge Daniel decided to subdivide it in the 1890s. He's eternally loved this neighborhood for all he would call as his future sons and daughters. And he calls us to love it too. And as his priests, he's calling us to pray for the neighborhood. To intercede on behalf of those who are in need of God's provision and his protection. His blessing and his benefits. His compassion and his conviction. It's one thing to love this neighborhood. But quite another to be loved back. This is a spiritual work that must be undergirded with prayer. So let's pray now that God will give us his heart and mind and strength, and only love him as he should be loved, but to bless this neighborhood as it needs to be blessed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that is, in fact, our prayer, that you would give us your heart and your mind and your strength to not simply love you as you deserve to be loved, and my goodness, you deserve to be loved with all that we have. 
but that we might in fact be a blessing to the neighborhood that we live in and that we would join with you in the work that you've already been establishing for many, many years. Lord, thank you for the blessing of Hebrews and for the ways in which we are seeing the work of Jesus Christ is superior to all other works. May we be his vice regents of righteousness and peace. We pray all this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.